Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the ID Podcast. My name is Gurinder. And I'm Naman. Today, we're lucky enough to be joined by an amazing guest. Who do we have in store today, Naman? Well, Grinder, this is probably one of the most impressive guests we've had on. Her uh, is Dr. Sheila Singh. Uh, and I'm going to go into a bit of an intro about her in just a second. But how are you doing, Grinder? How's, uh, how's school? How's life? You know, that's a great question. School's going great. I think, I mean, am I allowed to say that we're, we're officially clerks now? I don't know. It's like we're in this kind of transition, right? They're calling it a transition to clerkship and they're kind of letting us see people, but not really see people. A lot of moving parts right now. Yeah, all I do know for sure is that our medical foundations are done, uh, which means for those who've been listening to our other episodes, uh, we are pretty much done the base content that we do in our first year in order to be ready to see patients. Yeah, that's kind of a scary thought. I mean, it's exciting. It's like looking back how much we've learned in the last year and all the different things that we've covered. But I think the real test will be when they kind of throw us in the deep end, uh, which I guess will officially be January when we start our clerkship. But just going back and seeing patients after this seven-month COVID hiatus, I think will be a real test of how much we've really, like, is if Zoom University works. Time to find out. And uh, thank you to all of the amazing people who've made our virtual learning possible. Everyone's been working really hard behind the scenes to make it work. And I'm happy to say that we've made it through the other side. Yeah, still surviving. All right, Grinder, should I give us an intro of who we have today? Please, please. I have this burning itch. I need to know who it is and I need to know more about her. Please, Naman, take it away. All right. So as I mentioned, our guest today is Dr. Sheila Singh. She's a professor of pediatric neurosurgery and is the chief pediatric neurosurgeon at McMaster's Children's Hospital and the division head of neurosurgery at Hamilton Health Sciences. A little bit of her background of her previous schooling. Uh, she graduated high school here in Hamilton at Hillfield Strathallen College in 1990. Fun fact, that's my high school where I graduated in 2015. I wasn't even born in 1990. Um, so I thought that was really cool. After high school, she went on to complete a BSc in Neurobiology and Molecular Genetics at McGill University in Montreal, followed by her MD at McMaster University from 94 to 97. In the year of 97, she started her neurosurgery residency at University of Toronto, which took about nine years to complete because she concurrently did a PhD in lab medicine and pathobiology and developmental biology at the University of Toronto in the clinician scientist program there. Following her neurosurgery residency, she did a pediatric neurosurgery fellowship at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto and finally completed her postgraduate training in 2007, where she joined McMaster University Department of Surgery, Pediatrics and Biochemistry as a pediatric neurosurgeon and scientist in 2007, and she's continued that post to date. One last thing I, I know, this is a biography that kind of reads as a novel, but uh, it's important to know that she's a very, not only is she a very accomplished uh, physician. She's a very accomplished researcher with over 150 publications to date that have been cited tens of thousands of times across the world. One thing that we would like to address before we get started, throughout the episode, you'll notice that we'll talk to Dr. Sheila Singh about some of the obstacles she may have faced as a woman of color in a largely male-dominated field. Now, we highlighted this in order to allow some of our listeners who might be experiencing something similar to identify with some of her struggles and also know that it is possible to get by them with the help of your colleagues and by standing up. We would like to note, however, that Dr. Sheila Singh is more than just her identity. Her struggles do not define her. And as you'll get to hear in the rest of the episode, she has quite the amazing story to listen to. So I hope you do enjoy. Yeah, that's a really good point, Grinder. Um, just keeping that in mind that she is definitely more than her identity. And you, I think that definitely stands across in this interview. 
so with that, let's send it to Grinder and Dr. Sheila Singh in the virtual studio. Enjoy, everyone. So welcome, Dr. Sheila Singh, to our podcast. Thank you, Grinder. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Awesome. And we'd love to maybe get to get to start by learning a little bit about your background, your upbringing, and kind of what led you to science and to medicine. Certainly. Yeah, I'd love to share that story with you. Um, so I am the uh, child of immigrants, first generation Canadian. Um, and uh, I grew up in a household uh, with a mother who was a former nurse and a father who was a practicing psychiatrist in Hamilton. And um, I was really lucky to have both of them as influences growing up. When I was very young, probably around the age of five years old, my father used to take me on weekends. Um, I mean, he, he would work very hard and he was always um, uh, taking care of patients as he was a, um, the head of the schizophrenia ward at the Hamilton Psychiatric Hospital. And he used to take me um, on rounds to visit his patients with him on the weekends. And I think that was my first exposure to the fact that my father cared for people other than me. And that um, it all, I thought it was a brilliant move for him to, to take me along because it gave me a window into his career and his work world. And it completely informed me as to where he was whenever he wasn't at home with me. And I sort of developed a sense of um, feeling like I was doing something good for the world by allowing my father to go and take care of people who weren't, who weren't his children and recognizing the importance and value of that, of caring for people outside of your family as well as people within your family. And I think that sort of inspired me from the very beginning. By the time I was 10 years old, I was um, sneaking into my father's home library and um, reading his collection of books, which you can imagine were weighted heavily towards psychoanalysis. <laughs> and um, I remember being really enthralled by Freud's collection. So what I found is that, um, is that uh, my particular favorite out of all of the Freud collection was uh, the interpretation of dreams. And I realized at that point um, that the brain was a fascinating organ and that we really understood so little about it. And so it really gave this whole impression that studying the brain was some type of new frontier, an area of high discovery, because really we know so little about, about the brain and how it functions. It really is the tip of the iceberg in the sense that probably we understand less than 1% of the function of the brain. And so I, I, uh, I was really intrigued by that as I saw it for an area where research would, could be exploratory and, and exciting. So I had an early interest in the brain and a sort of foothold in understanding how medicine was a career that, that offered care for people. And those things set me on the path to uh, study neurobiology at the University of McGill, um, which was a wonderful place for me to again, find independence and, and discovery. I volunteered at the Montreal Neurological Institute and of course, you guys know all of the great uh, history about Wilder Penfield and his discoveries in epilepsy and in epilepsy surgery in particular. And uh, I had the opportunity as a, a volunteer leader at the Montreal Neurological Institute to observe brain surgery. And they had operating theaters, like really old fashioned theaters with the galleries with the windows above. And I remember standing at the window of the gallery and watching them perform neurosurgery. And I remember just thinking, this is amazing because it really made concrete 
uh, all of the abstract concepts I had read about in, in you know, my father's library. Um, and there I could see the brain pulsating and real. And so at that point, I think I thought, this is a, a very, very exciting looking career. So I got into medical school at McMaster University. And um, again, just a fantastic environment for people who are very self-directed learners. And uh, there I was able to explore my interests, which of course resided firmly in the brain. And I wanted to share with you guys my thought process of how I set about trying to figure out what my career path in medicine would be. And there's nothing sophisticated about it. It was just a very organic process of trying to match who I was as a person with a career that would suit me well. Because I figured that through my youth, what I had learned is that if you really enjoyed something, you were more likely to be good at it. So it was really important to me to seek out a career that completely excited me and enthralled me. And I knew that this would have to do with the brain. So I did neuroradiology, I did neuropathology, <laughs> I did neurology, I did neurosurgery. Um, and I actually also, uh, having done a neurosurgery rotation, was inspired to take a rotation in palliative care, an elective in palliative care, understanding you know, how little we serve end-of-life needs, especially in an acute um, field like neurosurgery. So I tried to explore all different facets of how we take care of the brain and the mind. And what I found is that I was most well-suited to neurosurgery. And the reason for that, again, came back to my interests and my personality. So in terms of my, my actual character, I think I'm a person who is pretty activist. Um, I, I'm not a person who likes to remain passive. I like to jump in. I like to, I like to sort of do things. I guess you could say that, you know, the, the Nike slogan suits me well, just do it, is what, what I really believe in. And so I found neurosurgery suited me well because as much as I loved neurology and I loved the entire diagnostic process of neurology was just so um, intellectually stimulating where you have to localize the lesion and find where in the central nervous system or peripheral nervous system the patient's deficits would, would lie in. And this to me was so exciting. But after you made the diagnosis, there's very little you could do to offer patients. And a lot of times in adult neurology, you'd be saying, oh, well, you, you have this um, you know, severe neuro chronic neurodegenerative disease, and I'm sorry, we don't have any treatments for it. So I felt that whereas the diagnosis was exciting, the letdown was in the fact that there was no therapeutic option I could offer patients. And, and so neurosurgery really felt like activism because not only could you make the diagnosis, but when you did, you would say, and now I have a treatment to offer you. And, and I'll do everything I can to fix this problem. So that appealed to me. And what I did then after I realized my leaning was towards neurosurgery, the next step was to test myself and to say, okay, I like neurosurgery. Can I handle neurosurgery? It, does it suit me? And do I fit well into this profession? And the way you test yourself is again, by putting yourself into that environment. So I took as many electives as possible around Canada in, dip to, in, in different departments of neurosurgery. And there it was very important for me to see that the lifestyle fit me. And it's as simple as, for example, it's very hard to do neurosurgery if you're not a morning person. You have to like getting up at 4.30 in the morning and <laughs> you know, running around and seeing people that early in the morning. You have to be the type of person who can wake up you know, and be bright and ready for anything. So even something as simple as that needed to be put to the test. And also, 
something like stamina. How much stamina do you have? This is where I found it was really helpful throughout my, um, my uh, years as a teenager and then as a young student, I would like to go for runs. And running is a good paradigm for neurosurgery because neurosurgery is like a very long marathon and you have to pace yourself and you have to have stamina and you have to think about um, maximizing your performance. You know, in that sense, neurosurgery is a little bit like a performance, um, whether you would think of it, a performance that requires endurance. And so that's another thing that I had to test for myself. Do I have the stamina to take the rigors of this profession, which is actually very physically exhausting and mentally exhausting and emotionally exhausting? And so all of these things were things that I had to test and ensure that this was a good fit for me. Um, because simply liking something is important, and often it is a step to, ex to excel in something, but the second step is to make sure that you are actually capable and that you have the, the capability to do something. So that was very much the thought process that led me to neurosurgery. And I think another question one often asks oneself, and I know that you guys have had this question too, is what would you do as an alternate? What's your alternate career path? What could you do if you weren't a neurosurgeon? By this point in my medical school, I had begun to love neurosurgery so much that I couldn't see myself doing anything else, which led to my application in the CARMS match to every single neurosurgery program in Canada with no other options or backup or alternatives. So for me, it was neurosurgery or bust. And I think I, I realized I was willing to go anywhere in Canada to study neurosurgery. And that was very much my thought process. But I did have to consider as at that time, what could I do if there was some reason I couldn't practice neurosurgery? And I think I chose as my second backup career would have been intensive care and perhaps neurointensive care, because there you have the same acuity, you have the same activism, um, you're often doing interventions to help patients. And so I think, and then on top of that, you have that wonderful cerebral diagnostic process and you would have the ability to spend a great deal of time with every patient to really try to go deep and figure out what was making them sick. So that was my thought process for landing on neurosurgery and what took me to my current career. Absolutely, and I love that you touched on the idea of stamina. I think that's something that we don't really discuss or think so much about, um, but kind of on that point, going through years of learning and training requires stamina and patience of an unmatched variety, I would say. So how did you continue to keep yourself inspired through all that time? Oh, that's an excellent question, Gurindra. I think that there are a lot of activities, um, and I've discussed this with other neurosurgeons who have mentored me in the past, and it's, it's funny that a lot of neurosurgeons tend to choose extreme sports or high-level music activities um, as their hobbies. Um, and I think it's because, I'll give you a, a paradigm, is um, I also played piano from a very early age as a child. And um, I think the training that's required for something like piano practice is something that is very similar to the, to the type of training you undergo in a neurosurgery residency. There's this sort of long-standing commitment that you have to improvement. The acknowledgement that you start at a low level, but you have to achieve a very high level of competence. And you have to have an understanding of what that arc is that will carry you from novice to expert. And you have to be able to pace yourself such that you can acquire the depth of knowledge that you need to, to move along that path. 
but also you have to have a very good sense of self-evaluation and self-knowledge to understand when you face struggles or roadblocks and to understand when it's time to ask for help to overcome those things. And I think I learned a lot of those things by, by studying music because music requires the same degree of repetition and repetition where you repeat something more times than you think you need to. And in fact, you have to learn something to a capacity of 150% just to be able to perform at 100%. So that concept of, of meticulous uh, rote learning that can sometimes feel boring. And again, if I bring up another analogy, it's very similar to the technical skills required to work in a basic science lab, where, for example, maybe you're you know, micro-pipetting for hours, or you're, you know, looking at cells under the microscope over and over and over again, there's a sense of repetition that almost becomes rote, but there has to be an understanding that those are the building blocks, and you have to put in that time and invest that energy in order to get to something bigger and more important in the end. So even though neurosurgery can seem like an instant gratification kind of profession, where, okay, we'll operate and then you'll feel better, the skills required to get you to the point where you can operate to make someone feel better requires this long-term delayed gratification and patience. So it's a really good test of your character. If you have deficits in your character, and I am a very impatient person at times, this is a career that tests you and, and forces you to, to become better. Um, and I think it develops your character. So it's very similar to a high performance sport like running. It's very similar to the rigors of studying the piano and trying to excel. And so that's why I think basically any kid who undertakes something seriously to a high level and whether that's athletics or music, you're actually training well for a career in neurosurgery. Absolutely. And one thing I've sort of noticed in our conversation thus far uh, the role of mentors seem to be really important, uh, play a very important one in your life. Would you like to speak a little bit to who some of your mentors were and how they kind of helped you to shape your career to where it is today? Absolutely. Oh, mentorship is, is, a, is an absolutely critical thing because neurosurgery as a profession, you know, it, it, there's a lot of technical aspects to it and um, a lot of knowledge-based aspects to it. But overall, neurosurgery residency is more like an apprenticeship than anything else. Because if you think about it, you have to, as a junior resident, uh, attach yourself to a senior resident who is largely responsible for training you. And a lot of the training you're just learning on the job. You're basically following this person around and understanding what their duties and responsibilities and, and, um, and capabilities are. And, um, and so with this sense of apprenticeship, um, mentorship becomes very important because you know, the person who's training you is actually the one who's not only imparting the knowledge that you need, but the whole ethos of what your field is. And so it's, it's very much um, reliant on mentors to set the tone for how you learn and what you learn and why you learn. And so I've had absolutely, I've been incredibly lucky and I would say that my career flourished because of all of the wonderful mentors I've had along the way. From the very beginning, I think one of my mentors was here at McMaster. The first pediatric neurosurgeon at McMaster Medical School was actually Rob Hollenberg. And uh, Dr. Hollenberg was a legend because he took care of the community of Hamilton for almost 30 years, single-handedly, being the only neuro pediatric neurosurgeon in the city. And he was basically on call 24-7 for any kid who hit their head anywhere. So that in itself, you know, is is the sign of, of extreme devotion and 
again, it just shows you that, you know, choosing a career in neurosurgery, it's not just a profession, it's really a vocation. And having someone like that as an example um, really sets a high bar and makes you realize, you know, the incredible importance and value of, of what you have chosen to do. So um, Dr. Hollenberg trained me as a medical student and then set up a lot of career opportunities for me. Um, he had colleagues at Harvard University and he sent me there as a medical student to do an elective in pediatric neurosurgery. And that was just an absolute game changer for me to see that level of neurosurgery practice and to understand what you can strive for. And um, later when I got into my uh, residency at University of Toronto, I had a number of fantastic mentors um, most specifically uh, at St. Michael's Hospital, Dr. Bill Tucker, who was my champion, my absolute champion. And I remember he, he was so um, thoughtful and insightful and observant, one of the most observant people I had ever met. And he was watching me throughout my junior residency, and he was watching me struggle. He was watching me hit walls. And he would just sort of chime in once in a while with some very um, honest advice, which very often was critical and hard to hear, but very important for me to hear. And I think he noticed that I was a little too polite. And at one point he told me <laughs> to get my elbows up and to elbow my way into the operating room, <laughs> because I think he noticed that some of my co-residents were more aggressive than me in terms of getting time in the OR. And so he would always sort of give me this encouragement um, throughout my residency, and I know that he, um, when he, when I struggled, he defended me on the basis of my character alone, and telling me that I was a very smart person who could overcome these challenges. So that kind of thing was very important to have, not only a mentor, someone that you um, admired and who you could follow, um, and who you would, you know, be willing to be their apprentice but also someone who offered the encouragement, but also sort of inspiration along the way. And certainly when I came back to McMaster um, to take a position here, Dr. Hollenberg was moving towards retirement, but I insisted, I absolutely insisted that he stay on for at least a year and a half um, into, as I started my new position, because I was basically telling them, imagine the missed opportunity if you don't allow Dr. Hollenberg to translate all of the knowledge in his head um, to me somehow. And I absolutely insist that I must shadow him for a year and a half um, and to, to try to extract every last piece of knowledge from him um, so that I could apply it also to my career. And that's where you see training in, in neurosurgery. It's really, there's a, there's a continuity of knowledge passed on from generation to generation that is absolutely essential. You can't get that from textbooks. You can't get that from, from, from anything you read on the web. This is something that requires that person-to-person -person training and contact. And so, um, for example, you know, I, I gave this example to the hospital and I said, look, Dr. Hollenberg has a personal shunt infection rate of 1%, right? And what's quoted in the literature is 5 to 10%. So I said, if you don't let me spend time with him, I will never uncover the secret of why his shunt infection rate is so low and why should the next generation of patients not benefit from that as well. So um, this is where I think mentorship is key. And now that I myself am in a position to be a mentor, I have to tell you that it is absolutely the most enjoyable part of my whole career um, is really to, to foster people's talents and to help them when they're struggling and to reassure them that I have struggled similarly and that they'll get through it. 
it's really the, and to then the most important part for me is to see them then succeed. And it's kind of a maternal pride that you have when you see your trainees go on to success. So it's nice how it comes full circle mentorship, but it's absolutely essential, especially to a career like neurosurgery. Absolutely. And we'd love to hear more about some, some of the other hats that you wear in your career right now. But to get back to this idea of kind of the path not being a straight one and one that takes some darts left and right before you get to where you need to go. Um, I, I know that anyone who has gotten as far as you have has definitely faced some struggles along the way. Uh, I would say especially so for you. You are a dominant person in your field. You're an absolute superstar, but there are some obstacles that I'm sure you've faced um, being a woman in neurosurgery in a male-dominated field, also being a woman of color. Uh, would you like to speak to some of the struggles that you may face, some experience of discrimination or bias um, that you had to overcome along the way? Sure. Um, I mean, I think that as you mentioned, Grinder, it's absolutely true that in a profession like neurosurgery, there's no way that anyone can just sail through a neurosurgery residency. And that's something I think you need to put into context if you choose such a residency. You, you know that if you're struggling, everyone around you is facing struggles as well. And I think the key thing is that sense of community that's formed within a neurosurgery residency is what will ultimately elevate you. Um, and, and, and help you and perhaps save you when you're really struggling. There's kind of a sense within the, the, the field of neurosurgery that we are all almost like that we've gone to war together. And we truly have. If you think of some of the, um, you know, devastating illnesses that we treat and some of the, you know, absolutely horrible situations we have to um, take patients through, um, we have to seek comfort and solace in each other, especially in the sense that very often what you see is so unique that there's very few people in the world that can, that can offer you comfort or solace who have been through the same thing. And so I think there's this bond that forms between um, neurosurgeons. And so I'll give you an example. Um, during my um, training, I decided for various reasons we can discuss um, to, to do a PhD and to pause during my neurosurgery residency training and to go into the surgeon scientist program at the University of Toronto and to pursue my PhD in the lab of Peter Dirks, where we made some great discoveries, which as you can tell from you know, our earlier conversation, I've sort of been chasing all my life. So um, that sense of discovery, that sense of, of um, you know, excitement uh, and, and something, discovering something that could impact future patients is, is enormous. And so although there were all the positives of that happening during my PhD, after I completed my PhD, I had to return to my residency. And even though during my PhD, I had done occasional calls um, at the hospital, so maybe two or three calls a month, just to sort of keep my hands wet and keep in touch with patients. And I continued to, to read on neurosurgical topics and make sure my neurosurgical knowledge was good. As I mentioned before, neurosurgery is a very technical field and it's, it's very much, there are aspects of it that are mechanical and those aspects have to suffer when you've been away from them for four years. So I returned to my residency as a senior resident and you could call me rusty because I hadn't been, you know, um, routinely taking care of patients and in the operating room. And I was very, very nervous about, about coming back. And indeed, uh, expectedly, when I came back, my proficiency in the operating room was not as good as the other residents that hadn't done a PhD at that time. And I had a lot of catching up to do. And it was extremely hard work because I had also had my two children during my PhD. So now I was also a mother. 
So I had come back to my senior residency, trying to face these difficult challenges, having to listen to a lot of critique and criticism because I wasn't initially performing at the level of a senior resident. And I have to tell you what actually got me through it. There were several things that got me through it. First thing was, remarkably and wonderfully, my junior residents. So my junior residents, who I was supposed to be training, you know, um, I, met, I, I admitted to them that I was nervous and that I had a great deal of knowledge to share with them, but that I was worried about having lost some technical capacity. They were the best supports in the world. They basically said to me, it's like riding a bicycle. You'll be fine in a few weeks. We believe in you. And they were absolutely full of faith that, that you know, any ach remarkable achievements I had made during my PhD could be replicated in neurosurgery again. And, um, and they really supported me. And they did another wonderful thing for me, which is that I tried to work efficiently all day. And it was really hard to see my children during that time when we were working such long hours. The junior residents always made sure that at, right at dinner time, they would protect me to go home for an hour so I could at least see my children and spend an hour with them. And they covered everything for me and held all calls until I took them back. So just things like that. I mean, those are remarkable support systems. And, you know, I think it's a pay it forward kind of attitude where those junior residents became exceptional senior residents. And then they had junior residents who were equally devoted to them. It's almost like we were probably like a, a unit in an army or a navy or something. The kind of bond that, that we built uh, being neurosurgery residents together is a critical thing to help support you through challenges and difficulties. Another thing that got me through that period was actually my family. My husband um, was a huge emotional support for me because I had to take so much negative feedback and criticism during that period of returning to senior residency. And I still remember there was one time I was in the operating room um, going through the steps of a procedure with a neurosurgeon who was really badgering me. And at one point, he actually said, well, Sheila, maybe you were a great success in the lab, but you're in the OR now. What help is your nature paper to you right now is exactly what he said to me. <laughs> so you have to be able to face that kind of negative feedback, which in some sense was warranted because I was catching up. Um, but on the other hand, um, to, to take it as to take the criticism and help make it strengthen you. And I remember going home and telling my husband that. And he said, oh, don't worry. They're just jealous. You're going to be you're going to be catching up in no time. And, you know, within the first six months of my residency of my back to senior residency, you know, I was evaluated by the program director at being on par again, and I had caught up. But there was a whole anxiety in that period where I had to rely on my support systems, my junior residents, my husband, and the, the neurosurgeons who chose to mention me. And so I think it, you can have faith in yourself, but at times when that falters, you need to have a support system that helps you get through those challenges. And at this point, you know, I, I'm really happy to share those stories because I want everyone to know that what looks like, you know, Gurinder, you kindly use the word superstar. I think it's an exaggeration, but, um, you know, any measure of success that you've achieved now is always underpinned by multiple failures and, and many, many struggles. So don't think that anyone's had an easy path, especially in such a challenging career. And I'd love to get back to the, the analogy of being in an army unit of sorts. Um, I know that camaraderie a lot of time gets built over shared struggle. Is there any specific cases that jump at, out at you or specific days in the OR or in clinic that were especially difficult? Because um, I know in a career in neurosurgery, there are days where um, you feel less inspired and 
you know, the world sort of beats you down and, and some patient outcomes can be very difficult to handle. Are there any stories you'd like to share along those notes? So I think, I think that there are so many stories that, that could be shared at this point. It's hard to choose just one, but I will share with you that being a pediatric neurosurgeon has been absolutely what gives me the motivation to deal with incredibly challenging situations. So, you know, people often ask me, like, how can you deal with a profession where children die of cancer and you have to tell their parents and in some cases you can't help them and, and you know, you lose patients at a very young age and that's devastating and how can you cope with it emotionally? And those are excellent questions because the death of a child is probably the worst thing that could happen in the world. And you do mourn it every single time. And it's not that the grief of losing a, a, a child gets easier for parents or for their, their caregivers and their, their treating uh, doctors. But ironically, the people who have taught me how to face that with, with strength are the children themselves. And children are pretty remarkable people. And they, they, the thing about children is that they have no self-pity. So if a child um, develops a left-sided weakness, a left hemiparesis, and they can't walk anymore, you know, they don't sit in their bed and cry and say, oh, why can't I walk anymore? Why has the world been so unfair to me? They have no such concept. What they do is they say, well, I guess this side of my body doesn't work. Oh, well, I'm going to have to find a way to get to the playroom. You know, they have their priorities straight. They know that life is lived in the moment and that you want to play and be happy as much as possible. And so from that, you learn. You can have a terminally ill child, and as long as you can help them to overcome symptoms to feel as well as possible, that child is going to find some way to get to the playroom. And then you realize, my God, this child may be dying, but my job is to get them to the playroom. And then you realize that that even, even facing such difficult situations, a child can behave with such strength and such grace. And then it makes you think, well, if a child can behave that way, then certainly I can too. So I think the lessons that I've learned from my own patients have been the lessons that have um, carried me through any personal difficulty in dealing with stress or grief or anything. Certainly, it's, it's quite inspirational. And I can tell that you carry what you learn into all the other aspects of your life. And there are quite a bunch of them. Uh, to kind of carry along the analogy of music for a second, you've transitioned to what I would characterize as a bit of a conductor in the opera of neurosurgery. You have a very, very productive lab. You're the CEO of Empirica Therapeutics, the head of division of neurosurgery, and a professor of pediatric neurosurgery, as well as being a dedicated mother. How did you find the balance? And uh, how would you, what, what sort of advice would you give to young students who are looking to build a career like that? So that's an excellent question, Grinder, because people always look at the list of accomplishments like that and assume that you've done them all yourself. And I'm going to share something with you that may sound surprising, but it's 100% true. There isn't a single thing in my life that I've done by myself. Not one thing, not one achievement, not one accomplishment has been done by me alone. Every single thing I've done in my life has been part of a team or a group or a family. And so I think that the sort of collective nature of achievement has to be emphasized. And I attended a talk at a recent um, immuno-oncology conference by one of my personal heroes, Crystal Mackle, who is a world-leading CAR T-cell expert 
and also a clinician, in fact, one of the clinicians who treated one of the first patients with leukemia um, with CAR T cells. And um, she's just an amazing pioneer in her field. And she once gave a talk, a sort of long history of discoveries made in immuno-oncology. And the whole theme of the talk was how every discovery is actually made by hundreds of people. And at the end of the day, just for simplicity, because you know, we have to simplify things to understand them, you slap one person's name on a discovery and that person becomes known for that discovery. But there's actually untold numbers of people behind the scenes that facilitated or perhaps even you know, made the discovery that are never named. I think the one piece of advice I would give people is that, and this sounds simplistic, but if you think about it, we as people are not really that good at asking for help. We assume that we have to be independent at everything, and we also have a sense of pride that sometimes prevents us from asking for help. So I have, in one aspect of my life, always had complete lack of pride in that I have never been afraid or felt ashamed of asking for help. I never saw that as a sign of weakness. Um, and perhaps some of that comes from that philosophy of McMaster Medical School where there's no stupid question, right? You can always ask a question and nobody would judge you for, for what your question revealed about your knowledge, right? So similarly, I would never make assumptions. I would always ask for help. And I'll give you an example. Before I had children during my PhD, I sat down and had a serious conversation with my mother and my mother-in-law. And I said, look, I'm not going to make any assumptions here because you are both you know, lovely, healthy women who may want to enjoy your retirements and not, you know, be involved in childcare. But I'm just going to say to you that I'm considering very much wanting to have children, but I'm not going to bring children into the world unless I can care for them. And I won't be able to do that completely by myself because I'll be doing neurosurgery and likely science as well. So I actually asked my mother and my mother-in-law if they would be able to help with raising uh, my children. And I took it very seriously. I didn't just make an assumption, well, of course they'll help, their grandmothers, they'll help. No, I, I wanted a serious commitment in a sense to know. And both of them just unreservedly said, there is nothing more we want than for you to pursue your career. And there's nothing more we want to do than help raise your children. So please go ahead and have children. And they actually made significant contributions to, to childcare to this day, actually. They're still helping me take care of my teenagers. So, but I, I just want to stress that that without them, without their help, and I dedicated my PhD to my mother, I wouldn't have been able to pursue this career. That, that's absolutely clear. And that help, I'm giving you the example of my mother and my mother-in-law, but I've had that help from everybody in every aspect of, of my life. So my neurosurgical partners, Dr. Ajani and Dr. Yaroskavich, they actually make possible everything that happens in the lab because they cover me when I'm not on call. They, per, they actually permit the activities that happen in the lab. And they're incredibly gracious about it. You know, so they recognize that research done in the lab elevates our whole program and they support it unconditionally. Similarly, on the lab side, you know, I have a wonderful research associate, Dr. Chitra Gopal, And without her, I don't think our research program would be possible. She puts in that hard work, that behind the scenes labor, that day-to-day -day supervision, um, the tiny technical tasks that help experiments to succeed are all a credit to her. So without these people, nothing in, in, that, we, that we have built together could run properly. So I think the key thing is to be able to ask people for help, but also to be able to delegate and to trust people. Once you've trained people up to a level of proficiency, 
you have to take a leap of faith and then trust that they can do things as well as you or better. The funny thing is usually when you train people up and then you say to them, okay, go, very often you'll find that they do things better than you. And that's actually an accomplishment. That's an advance. So I think asking for help, delegating, and allowing people to, to build alongside you is what makes all of these achievements possible. Well, this has been an incredible story full of rich lessons. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with any young people looking to start a career as a clinician scientist, how they might enjoy the journey and, and make the most of it along the way? So um, I think I'll go back to something I said earlier in our talk, which is that in general, if you really love something, you'll find yourself to be good at it. And that's a place you should make an investment. So I think a lot of my career choices have been based on a good sense of self-knowledge and self-awareness and understanding who I am and what my strengths are and what I have to offer the world. That's really facilitated my choices and made my career path smooth. So I think people should think about what are my actual strengths? What do I have to contribute that can make the world better? What am I really good at that should be easy to invest in and to build on those strengths during your whole career? I think a lot of times what I see younger people doing is spreading themselves too thin and trying to be really good at a huge number of things and um, not going deep in a few areas because often there's a fear of commitment to one area or a fear to just take the plunge into something that seems challenging or difficult. But that's where my father used to say to me, jack of all trades, master of none. And that's 100% true. So I think the thing is, is that everyone should try to think really hard about themselves and who they are and what is, what is their biggest strength and who are they as people? Um, what do they believe in? And what are their, their biggest character strengths? And that's what you should invest in and build on in your choice of a career. And once you make your choice, you know, commit to it, invest in it. And I think the happiness follows naturally when you've chosen something that you invest in, because there's no greater satisfaction than becoming deeply knowledgeable in one area. And that's something that I try to uh, foster with all of my students in the lab is I try to encourage all of them to become experts in a certain area, because when you become an expert in an area, you, you build confidence automatically because you realize, well, I know more about this than most people. And plus I've done these experiments with my own hands and that gives me credibility and expertise. So I think I would advise people to, to really to invest in, in your biggest strengths and to do that over the long term. And that's a great way to build a career. Those are some beautiful parting words. I'm not sure that I could script a better conclusion than that. So I think that's where we'll, we'll end this interview today. Thank you so much for this conversation. I know I've taken a lot out personally, and I hope the audience takes a lot as well. We'd love to kind of check in with you again, maybe sometime in the future as we continue to grow. But thank you so much for sitting down with us today, Dr. Singh. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure, Gurinder. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for listening to the ID Podcast. This has been Gurinder in studio with Dr. Singh. Wow, Grinder, I'm I'm honestly really jealous that you got to do that interview. It seemed like it was such an amazing experience, just really highlighting Dr. Sheila Singh's journey, like the highs and lows from kind of her motivations of going into medicine, how it's so important to have stamina and to how she found the motivation to kind of continue down this such a long journey uh, and just hearing about the value of mentorship and how that helped her overcome her adversity and just it really was a look behind the curtain into a very phenomenal physician and a very phenomenal person.
person. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, honestly, I think I'm going to have to listen to this episode a few times before I really believe that it happened. I'm still kind of a, in a bit of a shock that we could even get, get the chance to sit down with Dr. Singh, considering how much of a superstar she really is. And I know she likes to kind of dodge that label a little bit in, in the interview, but she's very much so a, a superstar at McMaster. So it was a pleasure to have her. Yeah, and I think uh, I think this is probably another one of those interviews that just had so many quotable moments and like words of wisdom that were shared. Uh, was there a particular one that stood out to you, Grinder? Oh, there's so many. Uh, but th for for one place to start, I think uh, this idea of the, the just do it mentality really stuck out at me. Uh, she talked about this idea in the sense that she knew that she wanted neurosurgery from relatively early on in her training. And it was just a matter of figuring out whether it would be possible for her to do it and, and whether it would be a good fit for her to do. And so what did she do? She found an opportunity to get involved and she started to test herself. She knew it would be a really difficult and long journey. And she just wanted to make sure that she had the stamina is one of the things she talked about and just the aptitude for surgery to make it happen. Uh, and I think the perfect metaphor that she used was running. Uh, the, this idea of testing yourself. It's just you against yourself on the road when you're running. It's very much the same as neurosurgery in a lot of ways and, and some other challenging fields in medicine as well, uh, where it really is does come down to how badly you want something and whether you can see yourself achieving it. And so she, she put the work in and she made it happen, which I thought was phenomenal. Yeah. And I think uh, another big theme that stood out to me and it was just how uh, humble and how much humility she had and just the very candidly how she said, everything I've done, I've not done by myself. And where she goes on to say that asking for help is never a sign of weakness, uh, recognizing that there's so many challenges that come with, with life in general. I think that's not just unique to a neurosurgery residency. I think just transferring that sort of advice and having a team and working with others and just kind of recognizing that asking for help is not a sign of weakness. I think that's a really, I think, that's a lesson that hopefully we'll able to we're able to get with time and adapt into our own personal and professional lives yeah and kind of on that note one of the examples that she gave was when she came back from a phd to once again enter the operating theater and get right back to surgery uh, and she talked about how nervous she was to come back and the amazing support that she got from some of her junior residents who she was in charge of in a lot of ways and, and was the teacher for, but she also did a lot of learning from those junior, junior residents in that time when she came back. Uh, and she shook off the rust and sure enough, she was right back to being her normal self and being in form and ready to go. Uh, and I think me and you and, and a whole bunch of other medical students across the country right now, probably across the world now that I think about it, can probably relate to that feeling a little bit. I mean, we've been cooked up at home, a lot of us, uh, doing some virtual learning and trying our best to absorb as much medical content as possible in this unique and strange time. Uh, but we've been away from seeing patients and we're finally now starting to get some of those green lights to get back into the clinical environment and talk to people firsthand ourselves. How are you feeling about that, Naman? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Grinder. I hadn't even considered like across the world what everyone else might be. It's, I think, very similar experience, kind of on hiatus, coming out of a clinical environment and going back in. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a bit of rust, but I think one thing that I've, I'm looking forward to is the whole collegiate atmosphere. I think one thing that you can't replicate in a virtual environment is just the doing it all together attitude, like having a late night at the hospital or having like coming home late or just being around like colleagues and friends who are kind of in it with you. And I really uh, resonated with like, her collegiality with her residents. And I'm kind of one of the things I really enjoyed about medicine so far 
before we went uh, on the COVID hiatus was really how close I was getting with uh, some of my classmates, making some lifelong friends and this kind of shared experience. So that's, I think that's one of the things that I'm most looking forward to when we're coming back. Obviously afraid about being rusty, but I think uh, just all in it together, helping each other out. I think it's gonna be a really unique and interesting experience that we're all gonna go through together. All right, let's not get too sentimental. We're not quite there yet. Uh, let's, <laughs> uh, we should probably wrap things up with our fact check. Uh, just, she did a pretty good job keeping away the medical jargon, which is impressive for a neurosurgeon and a PhD researcher. Uh, she mentioned uh, a mentor of hers, a Dr. Hollenberg, who I don't know, I didn't get a chance to actually find this stat, but she mentioned how he was the only neurosurgeon in Hamilton for about 30 years. And if any time someone hit, hit their head, he was the one to call and how it was so important to get knowledge from him. And when she came back to being a staff at McMaster, she insisted on shadowing him and learning from him. She mentioned his particular surgery called the shunt infection rate. So a shunt, I had to Wikipedia this, so I'm just going to copy it. Is that okay, Grinner? Can I put a Wikipedia <laughs> quote in? A-okay on my books. All right. So Wikipedia says, in medicine, a shunt is a hole or a small passage which moves or allows movement of fluid from one part of the body to another. And I think in the context of neurosurgery, I hear it's one of the more common surgeries, but it's uh, just relieving pressure in the brain. It's, it's something that it's tricky, but neurosurgeons need to do it all the time. And the fact that Dr. Hollenberg had an infection rate of 1% when textbooks quote 5 to 10% really highlights the practical nature of the training and how like a, a textbook doesn't really reflect the true practice of neurosurgery and that Dr. Singh really recognized that. Which I think brings us to the perfect transition to some final thoughts for the episode. Uh, one quote that I'd love to kind of highlight one more time. Uh, if you really love something, then you'll be good at it. Uh, so she mentioned this in reference to neurosurgery, and I think it can hold for a lot of other fields, but it really just goes to show that if there is something that you love, you have to pursue it, or you have to give yourself the chance to pursue it at the very least, and you'll never know where you might end up. And so if you have passion for something, that's the parting words for everyone listening. Please do do yourself the favor of pursuing it. Yeah. And with that, uh, I'd like to say our final thank yous. Thank you once again to Dr. Sheila Singh for agreeing to interview. It was a very enlightening experience. Also want to thank Grinder, my co-host and lovely uh, interviewer for the episode, as well as Omri, who helped create the episode and do a lot of the background research. So he knew what to ask. Also, Isabella for editing the episodes in production and thanking the rest of the team, uh, Daniel, Mike, Lucy, and Priscilla. Thank you so much for tuning into the ID podcast, where we discuss the stories of medicine and the people behind them. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll see you next time. Stay safe, everyone.